Welcome to Making Things Right, an invitation to restoring LGBTQ plus faith. I'm your host, Brian Nitzel. If you're tired of the debates and the division around faith and sexuality, if you're interested in more productive ways to engage and solution together and bridge divides between Christian and LGBTQ plus communities, then I think this is for you. So welcome to the table and welcome to Making Things Right. So the quieter middle. Some folks live in the extremes in this conversation as it relates to faith and sexuality, I think, and it tends to dominate the conversation, where most of us really live somewhere in the middle. We may lean one way or the other, but we're tired of the debate and the division, and we're open to more productive ways to engage. So part of that engagement is our actions, how we love and how we serve people. And part of that is our beliefs and what we think about morality and sexuality and LGBTQ plus people in general. And so today we're gonna talk about beliefs. Now, to be honest, uh, I had not planned on this episode. I tend to avoid the morality theology discussion because it tends to turn into a debate. It seems like what gets all the airwaves defending positions where I really wanna defend people I want to reprioritize what matters most and change the conversation, and I do believe that that is good. And yet, I've gotten advice from some trusted friends along the way making this project that the discussion of morality in the Bible really matters to many. And for some, those conflicts have to be addressed to genuinely enter into my more simple invitation, if you will, of making things right. So we're going to go there today. And I am well aware that I cannot lead that tricky conversation, but thankfully I met someone who can. So in planning the Making Things Right project, I had heard about this fella who is sitting across the table from me today. Uh, And I I don't know why I didn't reach out sooner, but kind of halfway through, I'm like, "I I gotta call this guy or email him. He didn't know me from Adam. So I sent him an email and he said, sure, let's get together. And we had lunch and I quickly just knew that I could trust him and that we could trust each other. His name's Dr. David Gushy. Uh, Let me give you a little credentials here, if if I could. He's the Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University here in Atlanta. He's the past president of both the American Academy of Religion and Society of Christian Ethics, which really points to him being a leading Christian scholar. He's authored and contributed to more than 25 books and over 175 academic articles and reviews. And his book, Changing Our Minds, shares his personal and theological journey regarding LGBTQ plus inclusion. And it just so happens that I'm looking at him right now. So hello, David. Hello, Brian. Hello, uh, (laughs) listeners. Thank you for joining today. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually sitting at Mercer University in some office. That's the cool thing about podcasts. You can kind of do it wherever. <laughs> That's right. If we could have sat by the beach, we would have done that. Uh, right? <laughs> but this is a pretty nice spot to do it. No, it's great. Uh, so our connection, that was really fun to just kind of find you out of nowhere. And, you, you know, why did you respond to my email? Why did you, Were you compelled by my crazy email or just open to this discussion or what have you? But we ended up having a wonderful lunch. Yeah, I, I, um, I feel a sense of calling to do everything that I can uh, to move this discussion, I would say, towards closure, hmm. 
in the sense of I want it to be over that there's a debate over whether LGBTQ plus people can be accepted and loved by God and the church on equal terms with everyone else. Mm. And uh, your uh, approach struck me as fresh. And um, But anyway, I'm always open to this conversation. And, and so now here we are. I enjoyed our lunch. Yes. And I'm glad that we're, we're right. now sharing this with, with the community. We, we went to the Blue Ribbon Grill. Right, right. You said yeah. it's a, kind of a big deal. There was like a line out the door. There was a line. Remember that? There was <laughs> yeah. a line out the door that day. Uh, I was just over there this morning, and it was the same thing. Just a local. I like local places, you know. It was yeah. a local place. And I even have my own server. That's great. So anyway. So before we dive in, just tell us a little bit about your life and your vocation. Sure. Um, I have. Uh, I was raised in... Uh, Northern Virginia. Um, I went to William Mary, a great old school. Uh, had a conversion experience in the Southern Baptist life as a teenager, and so I became a, a born again Southern Baptist as a high schooler. Hmm. Um, uh, that was uh, a long time ago. Um, I, I ended up feeling a sense of call to to become a pastor, so I went to Southern Baptist Seminary, and then um, and then I learned that I really liked the discipline of Christian ethics, and so I went and did a doctorate. At Union Seminary in New York, so Southern Seminary was kind of moderate Baptist, not fundamentalist, but you know, pretty conservative. Union was was pretty liberal, and it, I don't know. Somehow, out of the combination of the two experiences and the people and ideas that I encountered there, I ended up becoming who I eventually became. You know, yeah. um, so I started my teaching career in '93, and have been teaching and writing ever since. That's uh, great. And I live here in Atlanta now. I uh, have been for 14 years, so about half of my career has been spent in Atlanta and uh, at Mercer. A family? Yes. Um, my wife and I have been married 37 years. Wow. And we have three kids and two grandchildren. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I want to, as you know, I want to focus most of today on just your personal and theological journey, you know, um, read parts of your book, you know, maybe that's the centerpiece before, during, after, however you want to do it, but it'd just be really interesting to see kind of what your journey and your studies were around this. Um, but before that, just curious on your thoughts of I opened up talking about the quieter middle, you know, and I kind of think that's sort of my audience here. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, maybe it's because I don't know how to debate with the extremes. I'm not sure, but I really do feel like that's sort of the minority that make the noise and the news. And most of us are somewhere in the middle, uh, open to thinking or rethinking about how to love or what have you? Like, what do you think about that concept of the, because that's sort of the premise of my optimism here. I'm curious what you think. I I, I think it's great language and I think it's true. Um, there, There is a really hardcore anti-LGBTQ group, almost mm-hmm. exclusively religious, which is something, isn't it? Right. Sure. I mean, the energy for that is, is religious mm-hmm. and they're still out there. They're shrinking. Um, they're losing credibility, but they're they're still out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a really, really, really committed activist um, LGBTQ community, both religious and mainly non-religious. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and uh, we know those groups too, right? Many of which would think my patient approach is a little too patient. Too patient, yeah. Yep. We got to fight and win, right? Yep. You know, and that kind of reflects broader dynamics in our culture, right? You sure. Know, left, right, about everything. Yep. Right? The quieter middle, I think of as um, people who don't want to be hateful. Um, in many cases, people who don't even know what to make of LGBTQ reality. They they don't know how to think about it 
when they first encounter a person or themselves in that space, they're confused, uh, they're conflicted. They don't know how to integrate that with their faith, with the Bible as they've been taught it. And so they wrestle. I, in my book, I, I use the word conflicted for a lot of these people. Yeah. They're, they uh, they want to be kind. They want to be accepting. They don't know that they can be fully accepting, and so they're conflicted. They're yeah, in, yeah. And sometimes they're pretty quiet about it. Sometimes I don't want to talk about it at all because it's just too hard for them. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, hopefully the what we're doing here will help that a little bit. So. Yeah, I hope so. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think the conflicted are mainly moving in the direction of acceptance mm-hmm. um, because, well, they're being resourced with mm-hmm. um, uh, all, all kinds of good ways to, to get there. Um, and the, the hatefulness on the other side is, is not terribly appealing, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So, so that, that's a resource in a sense too, a sad one though. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's unpack your journey a little bit, would you? And start wherever you like. Well, um, I would say a place to start is, is the default setting of traditional Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. And the default setting it goes something like this, and I was taught this, not a hateful version of it, but a pretty a pretty uh, moderate one. Mm-hmm. God created a world, um, the world, and the world includes males and females, and that's it. And males and females were designed by God to be with each other, and marriage is the institution for that. And that is where children come from, and God... Uh, uh, is the author of that whole beautiful process. Um, and the Bible teaches this ordering of creation as male and female and male for female. That's a good way to remember it. M plus F, M and F, right? That's all you've got. And um, and then you have these scattered passages in the Bible that actually say it much more strongly than that, that sound pretty condemning. And most people have been exposed to some of those passages. And so it's easy to get to the conclusion that not only is this the way God set it up, but God's pretty angry at those who go in any other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's the default setting. So what I taught as a new ethics professor, what I taught really um, for the first two decades of my career until I became uncertain about it was... Um, male and female, male for female is God's design. Anybody who comes up with another kind of uh, paradigm is wrong. Um, gay people who who are Christian or lesbian people or trans wasn't even on the table at first, but right. um, are um, it's sad or wrong that they find themselves where they do, but our only message to them is become straight or something, yeah, right? You're you're deceived. You're you're deceived or or um or it's sad that you've gotten in this tangled up place, but we need to help you get untangled up and come back to heterosexuality, right? Yes. Um and gender binaries like we were taught when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Um and so now you don't have to be hateful within that message. You can just say this is how God set it up. Um and so that's what I said in my first two decades. But and one thing I would say that I think is relevant to a lot of listeners is I never really studied it closely. Mm. It was part of the the given package of Christian beliefs. Yep. 
It was not a debated matter. Mm-hmm. Um, just like we didn't ask, is Buddha or Jesus the son of God, right? We didn't ask whether this is how God set things up. It was just really taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the, that's interesting you say that. Because I got, I that was my paradigm and my foundation growing up and my thinking. And, and I had a reasonably critical thinking relationship with God, but this subject was not sort of on the table for that. It was not on the table. Yeah. Now, there, one, things that you really, one of the things that I think I would say about my journey is it helps to have a historical um, mind and a historical perspective because when you do, you realize a couple of things. One is that the church and churches have changed their minds about things in the past. Mm-hmm. And so... Just because something is a taken-for-granted belief in one era doesn't mean it has to be in another era. Hmm. The churches can change their mind. They just hadn't changed their mind about this one. Yeah. Um, another is that the churches can be wrong, and their reading of the Bible can be superseded by a better one. Um, and so my study of the Holocaust, which was my dissertation, hmm. I studied... Um, Christian behavior in Europe during the Holocaust. And uh, I focused on Christians, the small minority of Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. And that book came out as The Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, and that was how my career got started. Hmm. And I discovered then that the long tradition of Christian anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism, even more specifically theological anti-Judaism, um, funded the Holocaust. Even though Nazism was a kind of a modern racist neo-pagan movement, underneath it was two millennia of Christian anti- anti-Semitism. Hmm. And that was one reason why many Christians all over Europe, not just Nazis, were willing to participate in killing Jewish neighbors because they had a residual contempt that came from the Christian tradition. Hmm. And Christians, there were some protesters all along, but as a whole... Christian leadership in various denominations didn't realize that that this was so pervasive or that it was wrong until the Holocaust had happened, and then they realized, wow, we contributed to this. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. and we need to change. Mm-hmm. And so um, Lutherans, Lutheran churches made explicit renunciations of former teaching. So did Catholics, um, and so did some others. So, but only after the damage was done. Only after done. the damage was done. Hmm. That's usually how it happens. Yeah, which begs the question. Yeah. So why can't we get it right ahead of time before we've hurt so many people? Mm-hmm. Same thing on the issue of of uh, misogyny in the Christian tradition. Hmm. There's a long strand of um, contempt for women, uh, often tied by male clerics to contempt for women's sexuality, mm-hmm. and um, and so. Um, the subordination of women and the mistreatment of women and the objectification of women as the center, a kind of carriers of sin, uh, goes back uh, goes back millennia as well. And so, but that itself has been renounced increasingly by thoughtful Christian traditions. Even the conservative ones are are moving off of that hmm. to something more moderate, right? So, so here is so that's our history. That's the history, yes. and that. But see, I already had a historical context. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you about 
I'll tell you about a, a pivotal conversation I had. Uh, do you, I don't know if you know the name Mitchell Gold. Nope. Uh, Golden Williams Furniture Stores. Mm. Um, they have a shop here in Atlanta. Um, Mitchell Gold is uh, somebody who was raised Orthodox Jewish, or at least very conservative Jewish, um, and discovered himself to be gay. Got all the negative messages. So it isn't just Christians. It was Jews too. Sure. Um, had a miserable childhood. Put a book together in 2011 called Crisis. And with another author, um, collected, I think it was 40 stories, some of them from famous people, of people who have been raised religiously conservative and turned out to be LGBTQ+, and their trauma and drama and efforts to find self-acceptance. Wow. So this was early in my journey, 2011, okay? So Mitchell Gold contacted me out of the blue. He said, as a Jew, I love your book, Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust. It's important. As a gay man, I would like for you to put the same critical energy hmm. to thinking about this issue as you put to the issue of Christians during the Holocaust. Yeah. So he came and saw me in Atlanta. We had a meal together. Many good things seemed uh, to happen. Apparently. Way, right? <laughs> we had a meal together. And was it at Blue Ribbon? It was not. Uh, uh, I had not discovered Blue Ribbon yet. <laughs> okay. So he, he, just, he said, I think it's parallel. LGBTQ people are victimized by Christian tradition that treats them as sinful by definition, and we need some rescuers, and don't be a bystander, and I think you're being a bystander on this issue. That was like getting hit upside the head. <laughs> and I said I would, I, would, I would study it. Wow. And, and so I ended up hosting, co-hosting a conference for my denomination on this issue in 2012. Um, I'm actually sitting in the office. We're sitting in the office today of the guy who was in charge of the denomination at that time. Huh. And um, we had a, a, a conversation about it. And, and then my book came out two years later. So it was a, it was a um, movement off of a default position that was influenced by um, my own previous work, but only that called to my attention by a gay man, who, a gay Jewish man, yes. who said, you need to think about this. Yeah, yeah. But then also personal relationships as well. Hmm. Um, my sister came out as a lesbian, um, and the people that I went to church with, some of them um, were gay. They were all, and lesbian, yep. And, and so and some of them were in my Sunday school class under my leadership. And so the issue, scare quotes, became these friends. Mm -hmm. And I ended up feeling a grave sense of responsibility to do my homework and explore this issue in print and so I did that, and that became changing our mind. So how would you, uh, I want to keep walking this timeline with you, specifically like when you were kind of digging in and writing the book and maybe some ahas along the way, uh, but how would you respond to folks that, like I completely believe like a, a big uh, point of view of mine is no stories, you know, no LGBTQ plus stories. Let that inform your heart and your mind. Um, it's indispensable, actually. Yeah. So, and, and that seems like a natural point of view, but like, how would you respond to folks that feel like, well, you know, that's kind of the slippery slope, if you will, like being, you get too close to relationships and your theology gets soft. Like, how do you respond to that? The, um, A way to say it is that human beings are part of the data of theology. Hmm. 
they are not extraneous to thinking theologically. Hmm. They are part of thinking theologically. Hmm. But some of our heavily cognition and Bible-only oriented brethren don't really like that idea. Hmm. They think that they are just simply deriving their theology from reading the Bible. But I would say, and a lot of others would say, that we are human beings with our own narratives as uh, always present when we read the Bible. And um, we also occupy positions of some kind of social location within, within whatever power grid exists in a given space. So the way liberationists would say, liberation theologians would say it is, theology has primarily been written by the people on the top of societies, um, uh, biased by their own privilege, hmm. missing uh, what they could learn or even what theology would look like if they were paying attention to or were writing from below rather than from above. And so one thing that I would say in rejoinder is um, is that everybody's experiences affect their theology, but some people claim it and other people miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is that the people most likely to say, don't let your experience affect your theology are those who are at the top of social power. Mm. They, don't, they don't need, or in fact, they're not, they don't benefit from paying attention to stories. Mm. Uh, because their stories are the implicit ones that dominate. Yeah, yeah. So that's fascinating. You know, so like straight, married, white male, males have dominated European American theology in, until relatively recently. Hmm. And um, we told the story, and that's how I identify myself. We told the stories of how the Bible should be read. And we interpreted other people's sexuality from a position of alienation and, and outsiderness. Yep. And we were the ones who said, here's what's okay and here's what's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, that the blindness of that has brought home the more encounters you have with real people who tell you different stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's good. That's important too. Like, and I, it's, I don't think that's a hard, for me, like that's a harder sell maybe from the top down. It's not so hard from the bottom up. Like I, a lot of times I just, feel like this effort, I, I mean, yes, I wish that there were more thought leaders at the top having some more constructive, productive messages and guidance around how to how to love and make things right with the LGBTQ plus community. Um, but a lot of this work is bottom up as well, you know? And so yeah. g- getting somebody to agree and think the way that you just said about that is maybe a little less challenging than the top-down work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hard enough. Uh, you know, some of the language that came out of liberation theology, now I wouldn't say that I'm fundamentally a liberation theologian, mm-hmm. um, but it has affected, it has become more relevant to me in my thinking since I started working on this. For example, um, there, there's the idea that um, the people who see reality most clearly are those who are on the bottom of systems rather than on top. Mm. Makes me think of. I love that. Makes me think of like, who understood reality most clearly in the antebellum South, the family in the plantation or the slaves? Hmm. Who understood the nature of the power relations better? Hmm. Who understood what justice was better? Certainly wasn't the people in the plantation, right? Because that was their privilege. Because their privilege made it impossible or unwell, unwelcome for them. Yeah. Um, you know. So who understands what it's like? 
to discover oneself to be somewhere on the LGBTQ plus range mm -hmm. in a conservative Christian environment. Is it the pastor who's in charge of that environment? No, it's the 16 year old kid. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, the, it's the mom when the child comes out and the mom is, loves the child desperately, but the church is saying, you must reject your own child. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to where the suffering is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where you're more likely to encounter breakthroughs in truth than on the people who are already invested from the top in defending a system that they are in charge of mm -hmm. and that is reinforced by their own privilege and blindness. I mean, it's sort of, I guess, a rhetorical question, but why I know a lot of good, well-meaning people sort of at the top of the privilege spectrum. Why, why would they need to maintain that thinking or not be open to having a different way of thinking? Well, it might cost them something. Yeah. It can cost them. If they're religious leaders, it can cost them their jobs. Mm -hmm. It can cost them. If they're pastors, it can cost them members, mm -hmm. money, giving. Um, if if they're just in families, it can cost them uh, relationships with family members. Who? Mm -hmm. How many times have I heard this conversation? You mean you're accepting that your daughter is a lesbian and you're not going to try to change her? Mm. I can't be in a relationship with you because you're blessing sin. Mm -hmm. Lost friendships, lost family relationships. But also, I, this has become increasingly clear to me too, people are deeply invested in the way they look at the world. In and of itself, picture that invisible mental structure, the picture of the brain and all, this, all these um, ideas that make the world make sense. Mm -hmm. The world makes sense because I believe this, which connects to this, which connects to that, which connects to that, and then somebody challenges it. And this is often how I've had people respond on the LGBTQ plus issue. If I believe what you're saying about this, then that means I'm gonna to have to rethink that and yeah, that yeah, and yeah. that. And I'm not prepared to rethink that, that and that and that. And that. So, it's too much, yeah. it's too threatening. And especially in more fundamentalist structures of thought, they've already been taught if you challenge anything, it's a slippery slope, all the dominoes will fall. Mm -hmm. And so I think literally, Kids die from family rejection and suicide because their parents are unable or unwilling to pay the price of rethinking their, their core convictions. Mm. It's too much. It's too yeah. painful for them. They won't do it. Wow. And they sacrifice their kids on that altar. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to be kind of moderate about yeah. that yeah. because there's so much at stake. Mm -hmm. So my exploration process went from, I'm digging into this. I'm thinking about this. Let's try that passage. Let's try that passage. Let's look at that. Mm -hmm. And by the end, I had come out literally in the process of writing the book, which was in a series of blog posts, which became a book, mm -hmm. by about post number 15 of 18 or whatever. Yeah. I was all in. Yeah. My mind had changed. My heart had changed. I felt a stinging sense of, of guilt that I had ever taught anything rejectionist. Wow. And a deep sense of solidarity, you know, with suffering young people. That's so cool. So talk, uh, talk about your your book a little bit. Um, just just because I know you come, I got to imagine, and forgive me, I've read some of it, but not all of it. So I'm a horrible host in that respect, but I'm going to read it. I love you, Brian, all as well. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy came to me by reputation and I had lunch with him and I knew he was good. But I, anyways, um, but I, so talk to me about, like, you come from that conservative background. So, of course, you're not going to swing the spectrum all the way over here and say, I've got this figured out. You all are idiots. Get on my, I'm, I'm sure that you had a 
you know, like I do, sort of an invitational approach, kind of walk step by step or what have yeah. you. Like, how did you, how did, how do you lead someone through uh, your journey and your discoveries to help them have their own? Yeah. Um, well, what helped was I started at like the very, very, very beginning, you know, and um, and I use this language of, um, okay, let's see if we can go from nothing to something. Right. I mean, are there gay people? <laughs> you know, um, are there Christian LGBTQ people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is the church struggling with this issue? Yeah. Are there many, are there reports of pain and even suicidality and stuff? Yeah. There's, here's the data, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, are, you know, and just kind of, um, like, can we agree that it would be best not to drive people to suicide? Yeah, maybe we can agree on that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and can we agree that we'd rather have people wrestle with this issue from within the community than outside the community, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so I talked about, um, meaning within the church, within community. the church community yes, and within yes. their family rather than too. getting them out That's yeah, or right. the family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of said, okay, can you come with me this far? Mm-hmm. And then I said, if this is where you and get, most can, yeah, I said, if this is where you get off the bus, go in peace. But now I'm, that's the language I use. If this is where you get off the bus. If this is your stop, uh, head on out. But if you're ready to move further, let's go to the next one. And really, because that's what I was doing. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know. And so now, what about that? And then what about that? And 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 in the end, one thing I realized was that this is not a debate about gay marriage. For the 13 year old girl who thinks she might be a lesbian or wonders if. Her gender has been wrongly assigned. She's not thinking about gay marriage. Mm-hmm. She's asking, who am I and who is God in relation to me? And can I be accepted by my family and my church? Mm-hmm. It's a dignity and identity issue. It's a family issue. It's not a gay marriage issue. So when people wanted to say, Gushy comes out for gay marriage or whatever, I said, that's like step number 20. Right, right, right. Right. And it was hard. It was hard for me to get there. Um, But not hard for me to get to can we not drive our 13 year olds you know out of our families yes you know and so so the book is incremental i think it's one reason why it works mm-hmm. can you get to step one you know and can you get to step two and then can you get to step three and i realized that i mean that the the bible can easily be read in the most rejectionist ways because of the language of a handful of verses. Um, lang- you know, uh, in Leviticus, a passage that says that a man who lies with a man should be executed, you know, and, um, and a passage in Romans that, that appears to teach in Romans 1 that, um, that, that same-sex activity is like uh, the epitome of an example of idolatry, you mm-hmm. know. And um, in 1 Corinthians 6, a passage that has a vice list, a list of things that are bad, which includes such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So all you really need is those three passages. Mm-hmm. Death penalty. There are people still advocating death penalty for gay people. Mm. Um, idolatry, perversity on the Romans passage, and then no, you know, they're going to hell on the 1 Corinthians passage. Three verses in a Bible that has 31,273 verses. Mm-hmm. Three verses give you that. So part of what I needed to do was to engage those verses. Yes. To 
to try to uh, open minds to fresh interpretations of them, mm-hmm. and then to point to, once I had done that, to more central passages in the in the Christian moral tradition yeah. that could lead to kind of a recontextualizing of the whole issue. Yep. So that's kind of what the book does. Yeah, yeah. So let me remember, I'd love you to like go through an exercise of like uh, the first stop on the bus and then the second stop is like maybe where you started on unpacking one. And before you do that, to remind you, um, I remember your email to me when you were reading my paper and you, you love where I was coming from. You just kind of encouraged me of maybe the absence of sort of unpacking some things. And and I had told you about um, part of my story when I was really wrestling with this at the crossroads with God, because I had grown up with a deep relationship with Jesus my whole life. And that was not negotiable. That was enough for me to be celibate for over 15 years of my life, you know? And when I came to this spot of kind of putting my big boy pants on with God and wrestling, a lot of it is I had to go back and unwind what was God and what wasn't in my experience. And part of that was a new urgency to the Bible. Mm -hmm. And of course I thought, well, of course I have to go tackle these six or seven clobber verses, if you will, about homosexuality. And I just really wasn't very successful at that at all. Didn't really feel really even inspired to figure that out. Um, I think that's really, really interesting. <laughs> and and so I looped back to, and I really think it was God just pointing me back to the book of John and the heart of the gospel, where I just kind of saw in the life and the words and the how Jesus operated. I was just really reminded of the heart of God and the heart of the Father and the simplicity of salvation where he says, if you believe in me, we're good. Like, And, and that, that was really my release. And so my, my foundational peace as a, a gay Christian man is really grounded in sort of the, the the heart of God that I see in a little more of the arc of the whole Bible rather right. than particular verses. With that said, I remember you saying something like, it's fascinating, Brian, how you could just slough off those clobber verses. <laughs> Most people can't do that, you know? So you... How for folks that can't and the one those that matter, how do you help people step into rethinking some of those verses that seem to directly condemn uh, same-sex relationships? Well, the first thing I want to say is, <laughs> at a psychological pastoral level, I am a pastor ordained nineteen eighty seven. I mean, I don't want people to in I don't want people to create problems for themselves if they don't have them, right? <laughs> Um, if they if they're not stuck on Romans one or Leviticus yeah. eighteen, well, by golly, good for you. You yeah. know, I mean, in a sense, what you one of the things I think is so remarkable about your story is you were able to be raised in church, and to be gay and to discover, and to somehow have the core kind of spirituality and gospel not be ruined mm-hmm. by you or to you by somebody, which is actually I think fairly exceptional, mm. and. And in fact, I now believe that that's where the conversation should begin, hmm. not where it should end. Um, it'd be like this, um, and here's the parallel, and this is decisive for me. Um, so, so Jews are at the door in 1943, and the, the Nazis are chasing them, and they want to murder them. And they come to a Christian house, and they knock on the door, and, um, and they say, please, would you take us in? The Nazis are on our, are on our tail, and here's my family, I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and, and we need a place to stay. And you say, um, let me pause and find, let me get my Bible, and find all the verses that mention Jews. And let's see kind of what I'm supposed to think about you. And then once I've done that, I'll let you know whether I can take you in. 
I mean, wouldn't that be gross? Mm-hmm. Right? What's supposed to operate there is something more primal. Mm-hmm. You are a human being. You have children. Your lives are at risk. I'm called to love my neighbor. Mm-hmm. I know that God loves you. I, I know you don't believe in Jesus, but I know that Jesus loves you too. Um, I, I was taught the Good Samaritan story when people are bleeding by the side of the road. You, you help them. Mm-hmm. Um, why would I go look for those handful of verses that sound pretty stridently anti-Jewish that you can find? Um, why would I do that? Why would I look there first? Instead, I should, I hope that uh, as that person in that moment, the deeper wellspring of the heart of God for people is what would prevail. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way the church in general has responded to LGBTQ plus people is they're at the door. They're in the house. Mm-hmm. They're saying, can I be welcome here on equal terms with these other kids over here and, and these other people, right? Say, let me get out my Bible and see what it says in Romans 1 and Leviticus 18 and mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 6. Let me do that. And once I've done that, while you suffer uh, and while you experience your existence being of weighed, like whether you're going to be okay mm. uh, and while your mental health is suffering, I'm going to do that. What if the response was, you are a child of God. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. The church is a community of welcome and hospitality. In other words, uh, and, and how about this? Um, Jesus says the, the center of the law is love God and love your neighbor. Hmm. Um, the, the Bible is full of uh, commands to do justice and to look out for the oppressed and the marginalized. In other words, I think that focusing on the clobber verses, it's almost like a shell game. Hmm. Yep. We're going to focus on these six little verses over here to distract us from love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. God loves everybody. Jesus died on the cross for all. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Mm. All are equal at the foot of the cross. And, and so in a sense, I don't really like to talk about those verses mm. as much anymore because I think they are a distraction from the main thing. But having said what the main thing is, I'm happy to go back there if you want me to. Wow, it's, it's so refreshing because you knew that I was sort of trepidatious about doing this in the first place yeah. because what you just said is my heart as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, that's the heart of the gospel. The problem is these landmines are there in the text yeah. and they are the ones that have been taught. You go to a conservative church, when the issue of the gays comes up, mm-hmm. it's not going to be John 3.16. Mm-hmm. It's going to be, well, Romans 1 says and Leviticus. But what about how do people get past those landmines or the fear of the landmines or the fear of, I mean, heck, like my concern about getting this wrong kept me in, you know, basically the closet until I was 40 years old. (laughs) It wasn't until I had some courage um, from God to sit down at the table with them and and have a new conversation. And to much to my surprise, I found my blessing, not just my tolerance, you know? But I, mean, that, I remember, years. I remember yeah. that fear that held me. Yeah. Like I couldn't afford to get this wrong. My salvation was at stake. Yeah. I remember that like it was yesterday. That's, a, that's, that's quite a lot to go into a Bible study, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so let me, let me give you my best shot at it, okay? Um, the Old Testament evidence is actually really pretty thin. Um, you have the Sodom and Gomorrah story that people often quote, but what's going on there is a proverbially wicked city that wants to gang rape 
some angels from God, um, and instead of offering hospitality to strangers in a dangerous world, they want to rape them. This is the evidence of of the wickedness of the city. Mm-hmm. It became associated with sodomy and thus with gay sex. Mm-hmm. That was wrong. And most scholars, reasonable scholars, they don't even use that verse when they talk about this issue. Mm. Leviticus has these laws, lots of laws, all kinds of laws that Christians, and in fact, most Jews don't pay any attention to now. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sex-related laws, um, there's a lot of literature about it. Um, one, you have to look at, well, part of it is you look at the background factors. Um, one background factor for Jewish law appears to have been keeping Jewish practice separate from that of the pagan neighbors. But I think what's interesting about that specific teaching is that it doesn't mention women, it only mentions men. Hmm. And so there is a line of interpretation that says, this is about saying to men, don't al- men, don't allow yourself to be used like a woman, which reflects patriarchy, mm-hmm. not the heart of God. It also may have to do with the use of rape as an instrument of war. And so, and so the idea of loving, consensual, partnered relationships are not in view. Hmm. That helps, okay? Yeah. So historical context and understanding the purpose of a passage always helps. In Romans, it appears that what Paul is doing is he's painting a picture of human depravity. And in Romans 1, he's saying, look at these pagans here in Rome. These people are twisted. And what... What it appears he had in mind was especially the pra- practices of upper crust males, especially those associated with the Roman court around Nero, in which it was anything goes debauchery, parties in which everything was happening. And also, men in that context were free, the upper crust ones, were free to use and abuse males or females, girls or boys of any age. Apparently, Nero and his gang went around the streets looking for people to rape, basically. So if you understand that as the backdrop, and you understand that Paul is writing to a community that includes a lot of slaves and former slaves, what they would know about same-sex experience is exploitation and harm. Okay? That puts a whole different light on Romans 1. Mm -hmm. Romans 2 is about kind of the pridefulness or religious... uh, So in other words... In Romans 1, the Gentiles clearly need Jesus because look at that, right? And Romans 2 is the Jews clearly need Jesus because look at that. And then Romans 3 is Jesus comes and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's part of a rhetorical strategy to get people to realize that everybody needs Jesus. Hmm. Um, 1 Corinthians 6 has a list of, of vices. It's not even clear exactly how the one that has usually been translated homosexuality should be translated. Um, there are two words there. Uh, Malakoi and Arsenokotai, and there's debate about it. I mean, the King James used to translate one of them effeminacy, and it was again about gender, not about sex. Mm. Um, and that's essentially what you have. Mm-hmm. That's pretty thin basis. Those are the clobber verses. Mm-hmm. I think the 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 issue that I camped out on, the one that was the biggest obstacle for me, and maybe for at least a more high-end listener in terms of Bible background, is this question. It goes back to where I started. Is it really the case that we live in a world in which not everybody is 
uh, cisgendered and straight. Mm -hmm. How can we live in such a world? Because Genesis says, God made them male and female, male for female. Yep. So I think the big picture issue, those other verses are sideshows compared to this one. How do we deal with the fact that we live in a world that doesn't seem to conform to the idealized picture of Genesis 1 and 2? Mm-hmm. And that then took me into some deep digging into the power of that Genesis story in shaping the moral imagination of Christian people. Hmm. And, and how much trouble we've had with it. Hmm. Um, it created problems around gender relations because it sure looks like Eve is made second for Adam. And so the whole, uh, the whole tradition of patriarchy is rooted in Genesis 2. Um, the, the understanding of human sin has tended to be read off of Genesis 3 and the story of the snake in the garden. Um, and uh, the understanding of how we should relate to the environment has tended to be distorted by the idea that we have dominion so we can do what we want. Mm-hmm. But more deeply, God... And how, how many days did it take for God to make the world? Six, six days. Six days and nights. So the idea that the earth was actually made in six days, because that's what it says in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the idea that the earth is young, I mean, 6,000 years old instead of however many billion, right? Mm-hmm. Now, and, and also later, um, uh, interpretations of, of the racial makeup of the world were distorted by how Genesis um, 11 was interpreted. Um, so in essence, here's what I think happened. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 through 11, and more broadly, were written to provide a kind of a framing, opening narrative for the Bible. And a kind of a once upon a time, in the beginning, God made this kind of world. Yep. The passages actually have relatively little impact in the rest of the Old Testament. The scholars believe they were written late. They're kind of like a prologue appended to the the story that was written earlier. Hmm. And they have a kind of a folkloric, mm-hmm. um, fable-like quality. Once upon a time, there was a garden. We turn that into literal truth. Mm-hmm. One man, one woman. Foundational. Foundational of all of our morality. Mm-hmm. So when we, when we encountered evidence, we Christians, encountered evidence that didn't fit with that, we had to dismiss it. Mm-hmm. The earth can't be old. Creation must have taken longer mm-hmm. because the text says this. Um, the earth can't revolve around the sun. Mm. The earth can't be round um, because the, the story gives us a three-decker universe of heaven, earth, and below. Mm-hmm. And we can't, that can't work. In other words, it was never intended as a scientific account. Mm. It was never intended to describe everything about how human gender and sexuality works. Mm-hmm. We asked it to do more than it should. Mm. And then when Brian came along, or a lot of other people, the, the idea was like, hmm, I notice you, I see you, I, I, I talk with you, I hear your story, but you don't fit with Genesis 1 and 2. Hmm. So you are going to have to change, hmm. because you don't fit with Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And then you say, you don't understand me, you don't understand anything about me. In other words, in other words you can't do that to people. Yeah, yeah. Another example. When my, when my dad was young, the story was that right-handedness was normal. Left-handedness was 
twisted or wrong. So kids who came out left-handed had to be had to be broken of it, hmm. so that everybody would be right-handed, hmm. and it messed up their brains. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened to my dad. That's what we've done with sexual diversity and gender diversity in God's world. We interpreted it as wrong and needing to be broken. And so we're going to have to break the people to break them of this thing that is not supposed to exist according to our account of reality. Oof, yes. And so what we need instead is a better account of reality. Mm-hmm. And the people help us have a better account yes. of reality. Yeah, yeah. I think when people get there, that is the pivot point in my argument in the book. Mm-hmm. When people get there, for a lot of people, they've told me it's like, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to make my daughter, my son, myself. Something they're not. Something that they're not. That doesn't fit a narrative that they were never supposed to. That was never intended to play that kind of role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I say anyway. I love that. Oh my gosh. Thank you for going there. <laughs> it's so ironic because I didn't really want to go there and then I got you to go there. But I, I think that's I think that's important. And I personally, I was just very curious as to how you sort of, after you get past that first bus stop in your book of where you sort of take folks that are open to thinking about this. Any other authors that you trust to sort of think and rethink this from a not a extremely, you know, liberal perspective that it's hard to grab onto like any other. Yeah, there's a a nice literature in the kind of evangelical and post-evangelical space. Yeah. Um I like uh a James Brownson, a book called Bible, Gender and Sexuality. Mm-hmm. He's a reformed guy, reformed church. Um uh Matthew Vines did a pretty good job as an amateur in his um yep. book whose title I can't quite remember right now. God and the Gay Christian. That's it. That's right. Smart kid. Smart oh kid. He did that as a Harvard <laughs> college student, right? You yep. know. I saw um, him speak just this summer. Uh-huh, and then made a ministry out of it, right? Uh, I think the memoirs are very helpful. Mm. Um, because the memoirs, like Justin Lee's book, Torn, yeah. Jennifer Knapp's book, Matthew Vines is a little bit memoirish, not much. Mm-hmm. But it's like yeah, it's based in story. It's easier to grab onto. Yeah. I tried to fit myself into this paradigm. I did everything I could to be a good church kid. It mm-hmm. did not work because I was not made in this way that you prescribed. Mm-hmm. So so in other words, the early stuff that I hope you won't get off the bus before this is more like, can we agree not to treat gay people with contempt? Can we um, not kick people down the stairs? I had yeah, a... Yeah. You know, can we not kick them out of the house? Can we not have them join the homeless population? Can we not have them join the suicidal population, et cetera? Can we not do, uh, um, you know, the change uh, therapies, reparative therapies or whatever? Can we not do any of that? So- uh, I love that you asked, sorry if I interrupted you. I love that how in the beginning of your book is is kind of right in the heart of where I come from anyways. It's right- I asked you this when we were preparing, like, how do you kind of make things right in the meantime? You might still have conservative moral theology, maybe open to rethinking that, maybe not, but can you still, like, uh, you know, uh, live and love more productively in the meantime yeah, before can, you get those verses figured out? Can you not make your home a place of terror for your child? Can yeah. you not make the church uh, a place where you're afraid, you know, you're, yeah. you never know what the pastor's going to say. It might be rant day, mm-hmm. right? Um also, can you not make this a culture wars issue, but instead a human issue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, you know. So, but further down is the deeper change, which is more like, you know, we we are the ones who need to repent here. Mm-hmm. We saw this wrong. We were stubborn. We didn't want to listen. We heard a lot of people. And now we want to be in solidarity and be advocates, not just barely tolerant. 
Yeah. No, I love that you say that because it was, it was, I asked you at the beginning too, like the folks who are in the front row are personally motivated to wrestle with this in new ways. I had to, you know, uh, a parent whose kid comes out has to wrestle with this, but don't people in the second or the third row have some sort of, if not responsibility, at least an opportunity here to, to kind of, to kind of redirect this. They have an opportunity. Um, you know, I, I saw this astonishing statistic. I don't have this in front of me. It could be found, but something like 30 years ago, some very small percentage of people said they even knew an LGBT person, hmm. like 20%, yeah. right? So closeting connected to not knowing from the majority population, mm -hmm. which made it easier for them to retain their invincible ignorance about what was going on. When that number goes up to 80 or 90% know an LGBTQ person, then it's harder to do that. Mm -hmm. Then more people get invested because it's their friends. This is one reason why a lot of times high school kids, college kids are fierce advocates for their friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because these are my friends. Yep. Um, never, never does friendship seem as intense as that period of life, right? Yeah. You know, so in other words, what I would say partly to closeted people is you are, you are, if you stay closeted, you are preventing others to have the opportunity to learn from your story which makes it harder for them to get off the sidelines and into the game on your behalf. Hmm. So your courage makes for a better world for others, but it's not easy, of course. That coming out experience I know is not easy at all. Yeah. But it, 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 me, it puts more people in the game uh, who say, this matters to me personally. So, um, and for me, I would also say, I don't know anybody who has ever changed their mind on this issue without personal experience right. and testimony from from people who are affected directly. Yep. So maybe that is a good first place to start is just sort of look around, you know, yeah. and genuinely, authentically reach out to folks, ask them about their stories and don't <laughs> do yourself a favor and don't make them a project. A lot of my LGBTQ plus folks, their hesitation, it, you know, we've been talking a lot about conservative traditional thinking uh, hesitations. A lot of my LGBTQ plus friends have, have been, you know, uh, either indirectly or more directly hurt and rejected by the church and really don't want to have anything to do with right. that or God because of it. So the thought of actually moving into relationship is that they don't really want to repeat that. So right. if you are going to reach out to somebody, like don't do it as a project, do it because you, uh, you want to help make things right here. Yeah. And you just, and you know, you know, one thing I love about Jesus, he always had time for people. He always seemed to want to know people. He always just related to people. And um, it's just love. Love your neighbor. To, to part of the way you love your neighbor is you get to know them and their story. Yeah, and to realize that that is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. You know? This is what's... Not the soft thing to do. No, it's it's the so tragic, right thing to Brian, do. Um, people, were, people were trained that basic human relatedness and compassion and engagement and love was like soft and weak. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Who came up with that idea? I don't know. Not Jesus. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure glad I had lunch with you. And I'm sure glad that the episode that I avoided came to be. <laughs> Thank you, and I learned a thing or two, which was great. And But mostly I realized we're actually very much on the same page. We are. So thank you so much for today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yep. And thank you for listening. I hope our conversation served you well today. Um, I definitely learned a thing or two. Uh, the next episode is actually the final episode. Oh my gosh, it's in two parts. Um, 
I'm gathering some various thought leaders representing the Christian church or representing the queer community or some both, and they'll all bring different perspectives with a common cause. So we hope to see you there. Signing off. Brian Nitzel is an author, speaker, and thought leader. To learn more, visit briannitzel.com or follow him on Instagram at briannitzel.